Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, my dear friends and brothers and sisters. What an awesome time to finally be together. Um, it's going to be like a week of firsts for me. Um, this is probably the first time I listen to the podcast later on. I hear weed eaters in the background, you know. Um, probably the first time that I preach and get a sunburn. Um, it's also the first time I'm actually going to try to preach from this iPad. That's a really dangerous move, but I think it'll help because then all my pages won't go everywhere. So I'm going to do my best here. Uh, so it's a, it's a week of first trying to get this done. Also, there are a lot of new faces that I, I don't know. This is not be my guest that I'd see a lot of new people, but we're welcoming you here to worship our Lord Jesus Christ and hear the word preached to worship with us. Um, Nathan said it well this morning. We have not been gathering for the last 11, 12 weeks. Uh, we don't jump on and do a virtual gathering. We may get to see each other between there, but it's not the same. And as we come together this morning, this is a wonderful, important event for us. It may not be the same. We're still working to get it back to somewhat normal here. We're trying to be careful. We were still the church the whole time. It didn't stop that reality. And yet we were not able to gather in the same way that Christ had set up for us to do so. It's been weird. It's been difficult. But the fact is that now we have this opportunity. And of course, we're going to be cautious and do our best to slowly get back to this rightly. But we rejoice in the fact that he has given us the gift of fellowship being able to gather with one another. Um, there are some, of course, that are more vulnerable right now, or some that are out of state or doing something else right now that they cannot make it to be with us. And, and we, we uh, in a sense, lament that as well. All is not well. Jordan is right. I mean, uh, but this is not new for the church, right? I mean, there have been many Sundays where a lot of people are sick or they can't make it out to the service or they're out of state for one reason or maybe just our sin and we don't gather together. That happens. Um, and there's still other ways where, you know, ones have gone who have been here and members in time with us for so long and then for either work or family or for other personal reasons, they move out of the area and they attend a different church and they join with the body of believers there. And that, and that saddens us as well because we're not meeting with them today. And then there's another group who have passed on. Those who have been with us, but they have run their earthly course and now experience true communion with Christ face to face. And we long for them as well. It's been said over and over already this morning, but it's exactly right for us to remember that the longing that we've experienced in the past few weeks should help us remember the longing that we ought to have as we start to realize that the body of Christ is bigger than just this group right here and the group that is alive right now on the earth, there will be a day where we reach back in history all the way back and then all the way around the world where we will gather together in unified oneness with Christ. And we look forward to that day and it's right for us to enjoy that. I mean, what a church service that will be to be together and worship our Lord in fullness of joy and happiness because we know we are his alone. He's made all things right. This morning we gather together on the Lord's day uh, as a group of Christians who are unashamed to call Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, 
our Lord and Messiah. And we say together that he is risen, he is risen indeed. We enjoy that truth this morning and we proclaim that our lives must be connected to him. That in faith we trust him and him alone. As we move on here, we're, we're cautiously and, and hopefully resuming our gatherings and we'll continue to do some over the few weeks here that are coming. It's not an announcement. You can pray for us as elders as we continue to figure out what the best way back to regular fellowship and you know making sure we have proper routines that are safe but are still doing the right things according to scripture as well. So you can pray for us for humility, for wisdom, and pray for uh, like a, a loving heart because it's so easy for us to judge one another about our opinions about how this whole thing is supposed to go. We've talked about it already throughout the congregation, but some are ready to get back 11 weeks ago. And others feel like we got to have a cure before we get back together. There's all kinds on the, on the spectrum who love Christ. And so can I just remind you again, you need to hear it from us over and over again. Act in love like Christ, who did not concern himself with his own uh, reputation in one sense, but made himself a man and came for us loving one another in humility. So let us practice the same way. Well, that said, let's turn our heart to the text. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Ephesians chapter 2. If not, then you're, uh, you know, on your phone, it's fine. Uh, we're going to worship through the Word together. We are going to forge ahead in the book of Ephesians, um, but we're just going to look at three verses today. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It's a, it's a full section, but we're really only going to look this morning specifically at 11 through 13. So let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll pray together. Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby healing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we bless your name. Holy are you, most high God. We, we thank you for the beauty of the earth, the, the cool of the morning, the warmth of the sun, and all the food that it supplies. We thank you for providing a way for us to meet together today. Lord, we've taken it for granted. We recognize that. Forgive us. We thank you for the immense gift of fellowship with Christ. And this morning, as we see it so vividly, with his body. Lord, make our hearts glad in you, the giver of this gift. We ask, Lord, that you'd strengthen and encourage all of our brothers and sisters who cannot be with us this morning. We miss them, 
And we look forward to the day when we enjoy their fellowship again. again. We ask that you would go before us today now. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. Change us, Lord, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. There's the great American essayist, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who once said, Don't forget who you are and where you came from. Don't forget who you are and where you came from. Now, he's certainly not the only one to use a phrase like this. If you've listened to any country song ever, you've probably heard, Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget about home. Don't forget your roots. I mean, even Bob Marley jumps on this and says, In this great future, you can't forget your past. A quick search in the internet for uh, some sort of a meme like this, and you're going to see all kinds of inspirational quotes that remind us not to forget where we came from, to remember our past, and whether that's to inspire humility or kindness or love. At any rate, it's a practice of remembering where we came from to help us get a proper perspective about what's going on now. Today we'll see that this idea of telling people to remember their past is not a new one. Um, in these verses, the Apostle Paul looks right at the Gentile Christians and tells them to remember where they came from. In the first 10 verses of this chapter, we learn that we are dead people. That's what we spent so much time seeing. We're dead people walking in sins and trespasses. But God made us alive, and now we walk in good works. That was the, the vertical aspect of our relationship and our salvation. That was between us and God. But in the rest of the chapter, in 11 through 22, as we see here, we'll learn that that's not enough for God. That's not enough for God to simply take you know, care of men's relationships with him without regard for all the other relationships that we have here on earth. Remember what he said in the first chapter, nine and verse 9 and 10, if you remember that, he said that he was going to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in verses 11 through 22, our section here that we're coming upon, we are going to see that our salvation has a deep impact, not only in vertical, but on the horizontal plane as well. It will forever change how we interact with one another. Not only are we reconciled to God, but we are also recon reconciled to one another. In the first verse, in the first 10 verses, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we are, uh, if you remember this, we're clumped in with the other Jews. It's, it's, it's irrespective of race. It's all the same in verses 1 through 10. He's talking about that we all, Jews and Gentiles, everyone has been talked about here. And he's saying that if you look, you'll see that we language, that us language, and putting us all together, that last phrase in verse 10, we are his workmanship. He says that we should walk in them. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. But when you get to verses 11 through 22, a distinction develops. He's making the point here that there's something else going on with your neighbor. He is clearly talking to Gentile Christians in these verses about how they once interacted with the Jews and how that changed drastically in Jesus Christ. Let me just read these first two verses for us. In verse 11, therefore, catch the remember idea, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, for us to understand what's going on here, we're going to have to try our best to put ourselves in the mind of the reader 
the Gentile Christian. This is all new for them. They're in a historical place where Christ just came. He is just tearing down these walls. This is brand new for them. A Gentile Christian reader. We are, of course, Gentiles, and we are Christians, people who are not of the nation of Israel. We're not Jews. And so categorically, this admonition is for us. We are Gentile Christians. But let's just be honest for a minute. When we think about the Jew-Gentile distinction, we think of usually one of two things. We usually think of either like the Jews in the Holocaust who were murdered by the Nazis, millions of them, or potentially maybe a little closer to home, we think about the Hasidic Jews with the, the black hats and the black garb and the, and the, um, the long uh, you know, sideburns. Maybe we think about in those ways. But we rarely think about the distinction that Paul's talking about here. I mean, we understand he talks about that we as Gentiles were uncircumcised. Okay. We alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. All right. Strangers and come to the problem. Okay, we get it. But, you know, that that's, doesn't seem to ring too strongly with us. Those things don't seem that important anymore. But this kind of understanding of the Jews, if we think about the ones that were killed by the Nazis or the ones, the Hasidic Jews, or maybe in any kind of our modern context, it misses the idea that Paul is talking about here. It doesn't take seriously what Paul himself told us in the book of Romans about the Jews. And we're going to get there in a moment in Romans, but before we do, I want us to consider specifically the unique election of Israel as God's people. How important it was that he came to Abraham and gave him the covenants of promise. Listen to Psalm 147, 12 through 14. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. Skip down to verse 20. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Even in the Old Testament, we're understanding that Israel has a special place because they have seen God. God has been revealed to them. And you've heard me quote this many times before, but Deuteronomy 7 is worth us talking about. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more numbered than any other people, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand, with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to thousands of generations. I mean, the Old Testament is full of the election of Israel. But we know that this doesn't mean that all Israel would be saved. It was not automatic. They could not live wicked lives of unbelief. It didn't mean that everyone was automatically in. That wasn't the point. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 28 and 29, that no Jew, no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly nor the circumcision of outward only or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. 
that in chapter 9 of Romans, he tells us that not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. Now, if this is true, and it is, I'll tell you that, we must ask the question, what's so great about being a Jew then? If it's not automatic, what's so great about being a Jew? I mean, aren't we in the same position as Gentiles? This is where our historical context, being in Christ, and our lack of biblical understanding about Israel makes us answer this question the wrong way. Again, we need to come back and remember who this is. The nation of Israel, the Jews, the sons of Abraham, were given a great advantage. Consider Romans 3, 1 and 2. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? This is how he answers himself. Much in every way. To begin with, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had something, literally in their possession, the very words of God to his people that told them who he was and what he expected. They got it from angels, they got it from prophets, and eventually it gets written down on two stone tablets, expanded upon, codified in the law, the Torah. The nation of Israel was entrusted with the revelation of God's will and purpose. They knew God because he revealed himself, himself to them. And this meant that they knew who God was. And they were charged with loving him with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. They were to believe that he would fulfill his unconditional promises to Abraham. They were to know him and to love his word. To begin with, they were given the oracles of God. But that's not it. Paul also tells us more in Romans 9. In Romans 9, 4, and 5, he says this. They are Israelites, and to them, here we go, ready? And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. In other words, through them came the Messiah who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, you thought that Revelation, the oracles of God, was enough. But look at this. He expounds even more. He gives them everything by making covenant with this nation. By God revealing himself to Abraham and Isaac and all the patriarchs, we see that the Lord gave them close access to the truth of the gospel. And by that, I do mean the promises that are made to Abraham in uh, Genesis 17. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the, the patriarchs, and, and ultimately, the nation of Israel, kind of unknowingly, would produce the Messiah who would save the world. They were near. They were brought near to God. And although being a Jew did not guarantee salvation, it was a great advantage toward that end. As a part of Israel, they had access to the one true God. And there were those who responded to this call and believed and loved him. And they obeyed with glad hearts. Consider some of the Psalms of David. And those who knew to love God was everything. And to taste and that he was sweet was good. So again, the question kind of goes back. What's the great thing about being a Jew? Well, there's a lot that's good about being a Jew especially when you consider that this revelation was not given to the rest of the world, but rather they were entrusted with these oracles, the nation of Israel. Now, if Israel had listened and had been obedient, they would have known that it was their duty and joy 
to tell the world about this God. The Jews are supposed to share the truth of Yahweh with the world. I mean, from the beginning of the nation, think about right at the beginning, Genesis 12, 3. God tells Abraham this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. It was never meant to be all about them only. Or Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel was always meant to be a beacon of light to the nations. But instead of obeying this idea, instead of continuing to show that, and continue to glorify God throughout the earth, they emphasize different parts of obedience. But they, don't get me wrong, they still obeyed. But they emphasized the ones that made them so insular and exclusive. Not only was Israel to be a light to the nations, but they were to keep themselves separate from ungodly, wicked peoples. They were to maintain purity and devotion to God by keeping each of the, the purity laws. And therefore, they were supposed to keep themselves from mixing with other nations, right? But over time, these purity laws, eating the proper foods and wearing the proper clothes and separating themselves from others, practicing circumcision even, these things, although they are all correct and right and true, they just slid right in and became kind of the heart of what it meant to be a Jew for some. Instead of becoming a beacon of light to the nations, the Jews became more and more insular, prejudiced, and exclusive. When we read verse 11 and 12 in our text today, we're finally getting back there, right? When we read verse 11 and 12 today, this is what we need to have in our mind. Paul says in verse 11, therefore remember, he's talking to us Gentiles. He says, remember that you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He does two things in these verses. First of all, he shows that Gentiles were despised by the Jews. But then second, he shows that being despised wasn't their only problem. They had a real problem. They weren't Israel, and they were far away from God. In verse 11, Paul tells the Gentile Christians to remember that as Gentiles, there was a great gulf, a giant gap in between those that were Gentiles and those who had been brought near by having the oracles and the promises and the covenants of God. And when God called Abraham and entered into a covenant with him, he gave him a sign. You know this, he required Abraham and all his household to be circumcised in the flesh. And Abraham obeyed. And all Jews knew that this was the sign of the covenant. Uh, without it, the people would be cut off from God and his people. It was necessary. Circumcision was tangible evidence, something that they could look to and see. This was real evidence that a Jew was obeying God and that he was indeed close to God. And of course, this meant that those who did not get circumcised had no chance of pleasing God. They didn't understand the promises and the covenant requirements. And therefore... They remained uncircumcised, and if they did, they had, must have been wicked sinners. 
And you can start to see the logic develop, right? If this is true, there's a divide between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. They obviously don't know and love God. And therefore, they're wicked, and we ought to hate them. You can see how easy it would be in sin and selfishness to turn from a posture of privilege to a posture of arrogance and prejudice and pride. To a posture of looking at others who weren't circumcised as lesser people. And therefore, people who don't deserve our attention, our time. Some would call them Gentile dogs. They weren't even human. Paul looks at those Gentile Christians, begins by describing them as people who were at one time Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now that was the label. Look about that. It says, he says that they were called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision. That's a label, in other words. They're putting this on there, the, the, the uncircumcised. He isn't only pointing, though, that Gentiles had a problem here. Paul is underhandedly showing that there's another problem, and it's with the Jews. They call themselves the circumcised. And he adds that little note there, don't miss that, that was made in the flesh by hands. That phrase is incredibly important. It's the same phrase that describes the way man makes idols. Thus, what we are seeing here is something wonderful, a sign of the covenant and blessing and something that should show the goodness of God in a relationship with his people has become for them something of idolatry. And they're missing the point. He used the same term to describe them. You are called the uncircumcision by ones who are called the circumcision. And the circumcision, again, we know it's not sufficient for salvation. The problem is that it was made with hands like we just saw and of course, they still needed to obey and do what was right. But the circumcision was never the real thing. That was not the thing that they had to do. It was always the sign of the real thing. Think about Deuteronomy 10. Even back in Deuteronomy, in the giving of the law, Moses addresses this exact issue. He says in Deuteronomy 10 that they must have circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah 4, uh, Jeremiah tells the people the same thing, that there must be a circumcision of the heart. That something on the inside must change, not just of the flesh. And of course, then Paul does the same thing in Romans 2. He tells that the Jews are not ones that are only ones outwardly. And that circumcision is actually a matter of the heart. Verse 11 in chapter 2 here shows us that there was a major divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. But that both of them actually had some very real problems in their understanding. But if you move on to verse 12, we're going to see that Paul tells the Gentile Christians to remember that not only did they have a problem with the Jews, they had a problem with God. They were, what well, he says, far away. They had a real disadvantage. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, what does that mean? What are all those things? He gives us a bunch of stuff. Think about the reality for a moment in our context. Think about the reality of never hearing the gospel your whole life. You've never even heard the word Jesus Christ. Let's just for a minute think we're deep in the Amazon jungle somewhere in a tribe that's never had outside contact, never had a missionary come to them. They have no idea who this Jesus Christ person is. They certainly don't know that he demands their life. When we talk about this, we're talking about growing in a culture that worshiped 
trees and sun and clouds and rocks and the natural wonders around us. Think about the existence where they don't know what the Bible is. I mean, you believe that there are great powers. Yes, you tribal people, but I mean, you have no idea that you are accountable to the power, the one who made you. Your conscience condemns you, but yet you don't understand what you are to do with this truth. This is the problem for the Gentiles. They are not brought near. They are not given the oracles of God. Before Christ, they are far off. And Paul says that they were separated from Christ. Now, they didn't know that a Messiah was coming. For that matter, they didn't know that they needed a Messiah. They had no idea. They were without Christ. They were on their own. I mean, that's a really incredible statement considering that we've learned so much about being in Christ from the first chapter of Ephesians, right? All these things that we have in Christ, in Him, in Christ, over and over. And now to say you are at one time without Christ? Wow. We know what that means, and we know that that is a death blow to any sort of life, any sort of eternal satisfaction or happiness. So to be separated from Christ is to be without any of his benefits and destined for hell. Paul says that we are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This goes back to reminding us that citizenship in Israel, being a Jew, was grace. This was a blessing and a good thing. If you were a Jew, you were uh, near to God, and you experienced his glory. You heard the law preached. You participated in worship. And think about your heritage, your history, like your lineage was literally the patriarchs who had spoken to God. A Gentile did not have these things. He or she was lost. They were like the tribe, like I just described, in the Amazon, with no formal revelation whatsoever of the one true God. He goes on to say that we were strangers and covenants of the promise. The law without the covenant promises only leaves people of Israel in danger of dying, trying their best to earn their salvation. But yet, these unconditional promises given that he will secure his people, these are beautiful promises, the ones in which we trust that he will come through on what he said. He made a covenant with Israel and many subsequent covenants that reminded Israel over and over again that they could not attain the salvation on their own, but they needed the steadfast love of the one who called them. They were to trust this God, and they needed the promises of God and salvation. But the Gentiles, what do they have? No promises, no covenants, no law. They didn't have any of these things. This left them in a terrible place, and Paul tells us this. He says they're without hope, and without God in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. They had lots of gods, lots of little things that they could worship. We're talking about the one true God. There was no hope of salvation, no hope of true happiness or eternal life. There was no life to come even for them. And certainly they didn't know the one true God. Guys, if we're putting ourselves in this position, we are in a desperate position, a terrible one. Now, there is a way for a Gentile to receive salvation in this. It's possible. It was possible, but it was extremely difficult. It could happen if a Gentile would be willing to become a Jew, a person who probably hated them. But if they could become a Jew, or what we call a proselyte, it was possible. If a person would become a Jew, obeying every law and submitting to the ordinances and loving God, they could receive mercy as a Jew. 
hearing the commandments and experiencing the glory. But with Israel failing to be the light to the Gentiles that they were supposed to be, I mean, the prospect of Gentiles becoming Jews was slim. Think about that. I mean, if, if, I, if, we don't, if you don't know, think about this if you're a Gentile, if you don't know that the Jews are right, why in the world would I want to be a Jew? Why would I have any desire? They're jerks. Why would I ever, they keep themselves from me. They call me unclean dogs. Why would I ever want to be like them? Why would I become a Jew? This is the position that our Gentile forefathers found themselves in. The truth is, this is our heritage as Gentiles. The Gentiles were at odds with the only people, the only people who could give them access to God that would save them. The Gentiles were in a bad place. They were truly without hope, separated from God and his people. The only hope that more Gentiles could see past the prejudice and actually get there was a slim hope. The past this arrogance and see that they needed to become Jews. Good luck with that. Thanks be to God, though, there was a better way. Not just to become a Jew, a more permanent way. And that better way became available by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his death, his sacrificial death on the cross. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Something amazing has happened in the event of Christ's coming and living and dying and rising again. He has opened the way for sinners, for Gentiles, without the need to become Jews. Our real need was never to become Israelite, to become a Jew in those ways, national Israel. Our real need was to be joined with the one who has already become the perfect Israelite, the one who's fulfilled the law perfectly, who has kept everything properly, and who could give us spiritual blessings now and in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is pointing back to what you really needed the whole time was union with Christ. Just as a side note, that's exactly what the Jews needed too. It's not just us that needed that. The Jews needed the same exact thing. Look at the words that he uses here in the beginning. You're familiar with them. But now, in Christ Jesus. I mean, we were far off, but in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. And by the way, this is not like a leveling of the playing field, that now since Jesus died, everyone can come to God, not just the Jews. No, it's true, all can come to now God through Christ. That's not what Paul is highlighting here. Paul is talking directly to those who have trusted Christ for salvation, who are called the ones that are in Christ, who have believed, who have been made alive together with him. Think about all those things that we learn in verses 1 through 10. Paul is talking to Christians. He is saying that Christians, those who are in Christ, have been brought near. In Christ, we no longer are separated by circumcision from our Jewish brothers and sisters. In Christ, uh, in, in Christ, the way to God has been opened up to the whole world. In Christ, the law has become the thing that we desire to do and to follow because we have been redeemed, not because we have to fulfill it for our own salvation. In Christ, we are no citizens of the commonwealth, only of what we would call as considered the national Israel over here, but true Israel. In Christ, we are participants in the covenants of promise. We have hope, and now we have God. In Christ, we are finally at peace 
with God, the one true God, the one who can save and bring us eternal happiness in him. I mean, I'm done for now. What grace, what grace has been given to us who are far off and now through the blood of Jesus Christ, being in him, we have been brought near. This is cause for celebration and a life that's lived in Christ. Enjoy knowing that although we were far off, although we deserve nothing but hell and punishment and misery, we were brought near in Christ. This text is calling us as Gentile Christians to remember that we, who are at odds with the Jews, were at a severe disadvantage. We didn't have Christ. We weren't citizens. We didn't have the covenants of promise. We were without hope, without God. In short, we were far off in Christ that we have been brought near. So my encouragement to us today, remember the past. Remember our history. Remember who we were without Christ. But Christ in his grace has made us alive and has brought us near. Hallelujah. Let's praise God together and let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for before the foundations of the world that we were called in you. We don't understand it. We feel like we are completely unworthy and it's true. We were no better than anyone else and yet you showed your love for your people. Union with you is something precious, Lord, that we do not understand, but we glory in this truth. I thank you, Lord, for us who are so far off that you have brought us near. Lord, we will learn over these next couple verses that not only have been brought near just to you, but we've been brought near to everyone throughout the world, all peoples, because of the great work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We love you and thank you and ask that our time today would be glorifying to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.